The title of the message today is The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. There are three points of the message. It's the worst supper, number one. Number two, the best supper. And number three, the last supper. So trying to keep it simple. Point number one, the worst supper. So we're going to first begin by looking at verses 17 through 22, the worst supper. Paul says to the Corinthians, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. This first section of our message today, these verses, are a strong rebuke. It is not good news. It is not a positive word, but it is a negative word. It is a strong rebuke. The way in which they are partaking of the Lord's Supper is actually causing harm to themselves. It's causing harm to the local church. Verse 17 tells us that it is actually a net negative, not a net positive, that they are coming together and doing this. Verse 17 says, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, it would be better if you didn't even do this at all. If y'all just stayed home and slept in, pretend like it's raining outside and just don't even come. Now imagine that you are there in Corinth and you're part of this church and you know Paul and you met him back when he started the church. He planted this church and he moved on to do it elsewhere. So you know him, and you hear his voice in these words. And you have some level of optimism or excitement when this letter from him to your church arrives because you know, like, y'all wrote him a letter asking for help on all these things. And this mailman, the courier, comes back with the letter in hand and hands it to the pastor of the church, who then opens it up and unrolls it and starts reading. And you hit this part, verse, chapter 11, verse 17, which remember the chapter and verse divisions are not original, but it's just this ongoing scroll, basically. And he says, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Put yourself in that situation. Feel how much of a letdown this is to have that kind of rebuke, frankly. Talk about having your bubble burst. For those of you who are not aware, having, having a church, leading a church, making church happen, if you want to call the Sunday service church, there's three different ways to use the word church. There's a building, there's the congregation, and then there's the event. The event that we call going to church, it's a lot. There's a lot of things involved. And sure, there's more involved for us using technology and things like that, but there's also modern conveniences which make things easier for us that would have been harder for them. So I don't think that there's really a drastic difference in the amount of effort required to put on a Sunday gathering. So imagine that you're the host. You're the host family that has this house church meeting in your home and you've got some 30 people that show up week after week and every Saturday or Sunday or Friday or whatever, beforehand, before the church gathers, you're cleaning up. You're, you're sweeping the floor. You're, you're setting up the chairs and the mats and making sure everything is good. And then this letter comes from Paul and he says, actually, it would be better if you weren't doing this at all. Your gathering together is worse than if you just shut this down. This is a strong word, and this should help set the, the, the tone, to set the mood for the, the seriousness of what he's communicating to them. This is why this first point is called the worst supper, not just less than ideal. Verse 18 tells us, Division abounds. 
division abounds. So if you're taking notes and you're not like super familiar with how sermon notes and structures and outlines work and stuff, so we have the main points here on the screen, and then I have some subpoints underneath. And when I say a net negative, that's subpoint one, and then division abounds, that's subpoint two, verse eighteen. Division abounds. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So your sub-sub point is under division abounds. This is a believable report. I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Have you ever heard a report that you couldn't believe? Someone came to you and told you something that you, frankly, found impossible. You ever, here's the Nigerian thing. You ever get an email? Hi, my name is Prince Masinga Mbeki from Nigeria. This is a literal, this is real, okay? This really happened. Your help would be very appreciated. I want to transfer all of my fortune outside of Nigeria due to a frozen account. If you could be so kind and transfer a small sum of $3,500 to my account, I would be able to unfreeze my account and transfer my money outside of Nigeria. To repay your kindness, I will send $1 million US dollars to your account. Please contact me to proceed. Sincerely, Prince Masingi Mbeki. Now, when I say this is real and really happened, I mean this is a real email. Not that this actually happened. Or this week, I got an email from someone saying, I have a free piano, a free baby grand piano, and I would like to give this to you. All I need you to do is send me money to have it moved, and it'll be delivered to you. It's too good to be true. These are not believable reports. But what about a believable report? I had to pause and look around the room to see if uh, Jack is here, because I'm about to talk about him. Here's a believable report. Jack got four hits yesterday, six RBIs and seven stolen bases, and scored four runs. How about that? That's believable. Why? Because that's just what he does on the baseball field. Now, the problem is our game got canceled yesterday. So if you, if you know that it got canceled, you're like, well, that didn't happen. But it does happen. It's normal. That's just a normal... All in a day's work for Jack Whalen. Paul has received a believable report from the Corinthians. They're telling him there's contention and division at the practice of communion, which is to be a time of union and unity in the church. But after we have gotten this far in this letter, it's very clear that there is division in the church. It would be like saying, well... There's division in your church? No kidding, really. What, what about these previous 10 chapters would indicate that there might be a problem in your church? There's conflict everywhere. So Paul is like, yeah, I believe it. I think that, um, well, the un- unfortunate thing about um, biblical studies, ancient manuscripts, the way of the scriptures transmitting down to us is that there are no emojis in it. There are no um, underlines. There's no italics. There's no little bubbles that say, hey, this is sarcasm. Like You have to kind of figure that out based on the wording. But I think that he is making a, a bit of a sarcastic type remark. There's, there's an edge to what he's saying right here. And in part, I believe it. Of course he believes it. Have you read the previous 10 chapters? Of course he believes that there is division in the church. That's one of the biggest reasons for the existence of this entire letter in the first place. That's why they wrote to him in the first place, is because this division in the church. And worst of all, this division in the church, this contention that has arisen is primarily showing itself in its most problematic form over their practice of communion. The most important ritual to demonstrate their unity. This is the ritual that God has given to bring unity and to show unity and to put the gospel on display in a physical, tangible way. And that is being turned into a time of division. And this report makes Paul 
makes it to Paul, and he says, because of this, it would be better if you, you just closed the church, if you shut down, if you stopped gathering, and in fact, he finds that report believable. He's saying, yes, this makes sense. I have no reason to doubt the truthfulness of what you're telling me. I've seen the warning signs of these things here and there, and by the way, I got your letter. I've seen it with my eyes. I've heard what you told me. I believe that there is division. Now, verse 19 comes. Not all division is bad division. Not all division is bad division. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Drawing a line in the sand can actually be a good thing, a very good thing. Turning on the lights might expose the bugs. I'm sure none of y'all have ever had this experience, but you probably know someone. Your friend has had bugs in their house, and when you turn on the lights, the roaches go scurrying. So what would you rather do? Not turn on the lights? And in a very quiet room, you hear the sounds of their legs and their little feet climbing on the wall? (laughs) You're welcome for that mental image. Turning on the lights might expose the bugs, but it exposes the bugs. So now let me leap from that to this statement. Not all truth is a third way between two points. Sometimes there is such thing as truth and error. Sometimes one party is right and the other is wrong. That doesn't mean that the division is pleasant, though. It is a grievous thing to have to divide. It is a sad thing to have to separate. It is not an easy thing to draw that line, to stand up to someone, to confront someone and say, hey, actually, this is going no further, and we actually need to part ways. It might be good, even if it is unpleasant. Something can be both good and sad at the same time. It might be bitter and sorrowful in the moment, but it will prove in time to be good. As Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So verse 19, not all division is bad division. Moving on, verse 20 through 21, chaos at dinner. Chaos at dinner. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Have you heard, again, I'm not talking about you, but maybe someone you know, who has a family with a very awkward holiday meal every time. Thanksgiving dinner is just so unpleasant, so awkward. Uncle Harry won't stop talking and drinking, and the more he drinks, the louder he talks. And Aunt Carol gets really agitated. She doesn't like him in general. She certainly doesn't like to look at him or hear him, but the more he talks, the more agitated she gets, and then he drinks because he knows she doesn't like him, so that makes him forget about how much she hates him. And Then he talks more and more, and she gets more and more annoyed. And the passive-aggressive comments turn into aggressive-aggressive comments. And then, that I'm talking, that was uh, Uncle Harry, and then there's Aunt Carol, his sister-in-law, presumably. Then there's Uncle Jerry, not to be confused with Uncle Harry. Uncle Jerry shows up, bringing his six kids and their four friends, for not 10, but 11 people, while his wife and their moms are out doing Black Friday shopping during Thanksgiving dinner, and they don't wait for the family to actually, uh, they don't wait for the meal to actually begin eating. They just start digging in and making their plates without concern for anyone else. They also are sure to make their to-go plates, and they start rummaging around in your cabinets looking for Tupperware. This is all extremely annoying, and Aunt, Aunt Carol, who has uh, her ideas about how things ought to be proper, She finds this very annoying, and also Uncle Harry doesn't like it either because he wanted to eat something too. 
They're annoyed that Uncle Jerry would be so rude. He always does this year after year. His 10-person crew literally destroyed the entire apple pie, and they're carrying out half the turkey before all the dinner guests have even arrived. It's a chaotic scene. Before you know it, the 11-person group with Uncle Jerry, they're gone. They left. The dinner still hasn't begun. At least the rolls are still in the oven, safely guarding the mac and cheese. Thanks be to God. Just to be clear, the oven is guarding the mac and cheese, not the rolls. (laughs) So there's chaos at dinner. I'm sure you've never had a chaotic Thanksgiving dinner, but... The Corinthians did. Every time they had the Lord's table, it was pure madness. It was chaos. In the church at Corinth, they had what scholars call love feasts, similar to a church dinner, covered dish dinner, potluck, Thanksgiving dinner, something like that. And as part of that dinner, they would celebrate the Lord's table. At some point during the meal, whether it's beginning or the end, I'm not sure, they would stop and say, okay, let's break the bread, drink the wine, commemorate our Lord in his last supper. Ancient Roman, according to scholars, ancient Roman houses had dining rooms called triclinniums, which would seat about nine people. These house churches would have been no different. The less favored people, or those of less, lesser social status, or those who arrived late, or those who were coming from work, would have been stuck outside the triclinium, which only seated about nine people. So they're sitting in the courtyard eating their food. What happens when there's the initial nine? Well, just imagine that there's that Thanksgiving turkey. The first person there, he gets his pick. What's his favorite slice of meat? What's his favorite cut? Well, Everybody thinks that way. Everybody thinks, what would I like? And so they take what they would like. But as the turkey is passed around, there's less and less and less to choose from. As the time passes and more and more wine is served, there's less and less for those who come later. And so this is happening. For those who come late particularly the laborers who are working in fields and farms, they're coming the latest of all, and they are the poorest of all, and the ones who actually probably need to eat. And they're arriving and finding nothing left to eat. The quality and the quantity of food has gone down significantly. Do you remember? I don't know if your family did this, but mine did. The kids' table. Raise your hand if you had a kid's table. Great. Those of you who have never experienced that, whether you're just not raising your hand just because or you just genuinely don't know, you haven't lived this, um, I think that it's an important thing to have experienced. Um, the kid's table. Um, your parents may have friends over for dinner, and the adults would sit at the real table eating steak, and then the kids are sitting at the kids' table, which is possibly a plastic little tykes um, picnic table type deal in the living room, which was brought in from the yard, or uh, a f- square card table, a folding table that's set up there for the kids to eat at. Sitting on metal folding chairs, not the proper wooden chairs. And what are they eating? The kids are not eating steak. They're just not. Probably not eating potatoes and green beans either. The kids are eating Totino's pizza rolls. And they're drinking grape soda. And that was fine dining in their opinion. In the kids' mind, this was exquisite. This was fit for kings and queens. Well, in the first century, it probably wasn't Totino's pizza rolls or even the Totino's four cheese pizzas. You know, you remember those? They're like a dollar each for a whole pizza in the frozen section. But sadly, the Corinthian church was probably not even up to that standard. It was probably more like stale bread. Oh, you're at the kids' table. You came late. Well, here's a half-eaten loaf of stale bread for you. 
Oh, you want some soup? Hold on real quick. Let me, let me boil some water and throw it in the soup so we can have more soup. In other words, you're getting hot water that's a little salty. And that's your soup to dip your stale bread in to make it soft enough to eat. So you have in this situation a bit of class warfare going on within the church. The wealthy are eating their shrimp and lobster and eating in a formal dining room, and the poor are sitting on the curb eating moldy crackers and drinking flat Sam's, Sam's Club pop. Please note, wealthy people do not drink pop. One scholar says that some members of the church were satiating themselves and getting drunk as at these meals may have suggested that they were carrying that they were carrying on as would be expected at a meal eaten in the name of Dionysius, the god identified with merry and usually excessive feasting in the Roman world. In fact, it was suggested that any activities that distracted from informal friendly conversation and merry entertainment were an abuse of Dionysius. In other words, you ought to be feasting and carrying on, and if you're not, you're not properly worshiping Dionysius. If Dionysius was abused when merry entertainment and libertine partying were inhibited, Christ is abused when his self-sacrifice and others' orientation is not reflected in the fellowship that's seen in the wine, not merry entertainment, but sacrifice, blood poured out for others. Christians who understand the true nature of the Lord's Supper should be expected to manifest a commitment to laying their lives down, especially for the sake of of the weaker, the poorer, the more fragile members of their church. Those who have needs. Oh, you're hungry? Here, you get, you, cut in, you get in front of me. I had breakfast today. You're both reaching for that last chicken leg? Needless to say, this whole situation in Corinth is very stressful and it's very uncomfortable and tensions are high, and food is low, and half the church is in the dining room, and they're drunk with half-eaten turkey legs on their plates, not finishing their food. The other half of the church is sitting in the foyer munching on stale Pop-Tarts. And for those who are not from around here, for the three of you who don't know what a Pop-Tart is, a Pop-Tart is a genetically modified organism with as many calories as a large cheeseburger and the nutrients of cotton candy. So what's created in this situation? Well, the genuine believers in the room, the genuine believers in the church are very uncomfortable. They are so uncomfortable with this. They dread it. Frankly, they would rather not be here. They agree with Paul that it would be better if we just close this church than continue to do this to these people. We're, we're aiding the wealthy drunks in the church in their bad treatment of others by continuing to schedule this event where they will sin and abuse the weaker members of our church. So the true Christians in the room are very uncomfortable and frankly dread this entire experience each time it occurs. They agree with Paul when Paul says, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Shall I praise you in this? No, I will not. Those words resonate with him, with with them. They see, yeah, Paul is being reasonable. That makes sense. Paul hates this. This is not the Lord's Supper. This is the worst supper. This brings us into our second point. The best supper. Point two. Verses 23 and 26, 226. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Paul's positive words regarding the Lord's table begin here in verse 23. He first tells them that this message he's delivering to them came from Jesus himself. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I got this from Jesus. Now, we can read about it in the Gospels. 
but I don't think they had access to those books at the time. One scholar says, Jesus' statement that the cup is the new covenant in my blood fuses together the language of Jeremiah 31.31, which is the new covenant, and Exodus 24.8, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. The second text refers to the establishment of the covenant at Sinai, while the former, the first, consists of God's promise to establish a new covenant in the time of post-exilic restoration. In other words, after Israel has been exiled. By fusing these two texts together, Jesus interprets his impending death as the sacrifice that establishes the new covenant associated with the second exodus. What is the second exodus? Well, the second exodus is the salvation and redemption and deliverance of God's people. Jesus as the greater Moses who would come to liberate his people, to let them go from their slavery to sin, their bondage to sin and death. I should have said close quote about three sentences ago, but... Consider what is taking place when Jesus and his disciples gathered together in that upper room. The night which Jesus was betrayed, they gathered together to celebrate Passover. Passover. Again, the most important of the holidays for the Jewish people. Jesus and his disciples are Jewish people. They're celebrating this Vitally important holiday. They're they're celebrating this very important meal, this feast together, the 12 of them, just the 12. Jesus has had a large crowd, many large crowds following him around for quite some time. And here this is the night before his death. And they have shooed away all the extra people, said, no, 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 we're we're just just, just the 12, please. Oh, but so-and-so wants to go. Sorry, there's only, there's only... 13 seats here. Just Have you ever had dinner with 12 friends on a daily basis for years as a cohort, a brotherhood? You probably haven't. But just imagine with me that your bonds run deep. Your teacher and your mentor has poured into you deeply. You know all of his stories. You've embraced his framework, his way of thinking. You've embraced his passion, the things that he's very committed to, you're very committed to. You could, frankly, write his speeches for him because you know how he thinks. You shared countless meals together. But this one takes on an even more intimate tone. When your master, teacher, and friend begins to speak of his impending betrayal and death. You're literally sharing a loaf of bread with this man, Jesus. Jesus, the Lord and King of history. Jesus, the Lord and King of history, the sovereign creator of the universe, who's actually going to die in a few hours. And he's going to die in a few hours in in the place of a world of wretched and vile sinners such as you and I. So see him in your mind's eye. See him lift up that bread and say these words. Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Have you ever witnessed something and recognized that it was significant? Have you ever observed something? You've seen something happen. And in that moment, you might not really understand it, but you recognize to some degree, this is a big deal. For many of us, it was 9-11. You're seeing something happen and you recognize that this is going to change the world. Something huge is happening. 
Whether they recognize it or not, this moment that the disciples were so privileged to not only see, but to also participate in, was truly the greatest of all suppers. It was truly the best supper. And they, of all people, were invited into this moment. Please remember, these disciples were not invited because they were better than the others who were not invited. If you don't know that, I would invite you to read the books we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you see the disciples continuously doing stupid things. You see Peter, James, and John constantly doing and saying the dumbest things. And nearly all of you know this, too, that Judas, who, according to Jesus, in this moment is indwelt by Satan himself, he's also at the table. So the fact that these 12 are here is is not because they're the best. But they're there, in fact, because Jesus invited them. The disciples were tremendously privileged to observe, to participate in this greatest of all suppers. But what else is happening? What else is happening at this best of all suppers? In these final moments before his death, Jesus is facing his death and believing, based on the word of God, that he would be raised. For those of you who have been here for over a year, remember Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism is the ancient heresy of the the blending and commingling of the human and the divine mind of Christ. So basically, Jesus as Superman walking around being like, oh, I'm God, I'm the God-man, and just having all this access to the divine mind. But that's actually heresy. But in his humanity, his deity is veiled, and so he's walking on this earth as a man, He's retained his deity, but he's not accessing the divine mind. And so how does he know what he knows? How does he believe what he believes? How does he do what he does? It's by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And so as he has read and studied and memorized the Old Testament, he recognizes that these prophecies about the Messiah are about him. He knows that he will be the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah. He knows that he's the one who's going to go to the cross. He will be the one beaten and tortured and his his face so marred it doesn't even look human anymore. He recognizes that that's about himself, but he also knows that he will rise because the Bible says so. We know this because he himself said so. Jesus told the Pharisees that you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The editor adds, or the writer, the gospel writer adds that he was speaking about his own body, John 2.19. Jesus believed the promise of God from Psalm 16 that God would not let his Holy One, Jesus, see corruption. That means his body, that his body would not decay in the grave, but rather would be raised. He believes that he will rise because of the written word of God. What else is happening at this supper? Jesus is giving them a memento. He's giving them a token to remember him by And this special ritual has been handed down to us for 2,000 years. Do you have any family heirlooms? Do you have anything? I mean, you're the wrong crowd for this because we're all like, I live in a New York apartment and I just moved here so I don't have my stuff with me from storage in the South. But on the topic of family heirlooms, my trumpet is the most meaningful one that I have, and quite possibly for you too. No joke. My trumpet is one of the many reasons why you are in this room right now. 
Because after my grandfather passed away, my grandmother was going through his belongings and giving things away to the relatives, and they pulled out this trumpet, and Grandma said, your grandfather played this when he was your age, and your dad played it when he was your age. Would you like it? Oh, and by the way, here's a fun story. When your grandpa was your age playing this trumpet, your great-grandpa, his father, who was a drunk, took the trumpet and sold it at a pawn shop for beer money, and your great-grandmother was so mad that she went and bought it back from the pawn shop so that your grandpa could continue playing trumpet, and then your father played the trumpet. Now, would you like this trumpet? Now, what does 10-year-old Andy say? Yes. Yes, I want to play it. It could have been a xylophone, and I would have still wanted it because of that story attached to it. So I start trumpet lessons when I'm like 10 years old. Took lessons till I was about 18. But the trumpet teacher that I would stick with for the last six or so years was the one who introduced me to the doctrines of grace. He's the one who said, hey, you need to learn about this thing called Calvinism, which I'd never heard of before. And it changed my life and literally set me on a trajectory of some 50 or so traceable connected events that literally led to the establishment of this church. Why? Because if I wasn't reformed, I would not be here. And if this church wasn't reformed, I don't think most of y'all would be here. So we have these heirlooms that mean a great deal to us. But the best of all heirlooms, the best of all memorials and remembrances is this, the Lord's table of infinitely more value than some silver trumpet. What makes this the best of all memorials is the subject of this memorial. It is not a mere man that we are remembering, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. He is the Son of God. He is the one made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account, on our behalf, in our place, so that in him, in Christ, we would be made the righteousness of God. Jesus is the Son of God made sin for us, that in him we would be counted righteous. Jesus is not only the Son of God, but he is the spotless Lamb of God who is slaughtered as a sacrifice to cancel our guilt. Jesus is the Holy One who would bear our wretchedness. Jesus is the one who knew no sin. He had never experienced his own sin. He never sinned. And he never experienced the separation from the Father that is the consequence of sin. Remember, Isaiah tells us your sins have separated you from your God. Yet in his bearing our sin on that cross, a great cloud of darkness would descend upon him as he utters those haunting words in the cry of desolation, which say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, I'm not not silent. But how does he end? Well, verse three, which he's quoting, Psalm 22, one through three, a messianic psalm speaking of him. He draws that connection for us by quoting it in his death. Verse three says, the reason why You are holy. So as Jesus is there hanging on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is in verse three. It's because of the holiness of God. That's the reason. The sense of the presence of God, the smile of the Father upon his Son, and the communion, the union, the fellowship between the Father and the Son is shattered. Perhaps you know that feeling in some small way. The destruction of a relationship. You look upon someone that you love and your loving gaze is met with scornful contempt. Your eyes of love are met with eyes of hatred and fierce anger. 
When Jesus hung on the cross, he not only sensed the abandonment of his father, but he also suffered the full, unbridled, unfiltered, unmediated wrath of God. Think with me about the last time you baked cookies in your oven. And you opened the oven to pull them out. And your face was a little too close to the oven. What did you feel? A lot of heat. What could you have done to fix that? Put your hand in front of your face. Then your face doesn't feel the heat. Your hand blocks it. It's that simple. That's what it would mean to filter or to mediate or to bridle that fire, to block it. But when Jesus suffered under the wrath of God, there was no filter. There was no block between them. There was no blast shield. Rather, Jesus experienced the wrath of God in all of its fullness and all of its fury. The fire of God's perfect justice and holy wrath against a great multitude of unspeakably wicked sinners was concentrated more intensely than any magnifying glass could focus the sun's rays. And the fire of God fell upon his son, Jesus Christ. I can't imagine the agony of that. When my body reaches its limit, it shuts down. Jesus was not afforded that privilege. He didn't get to pass out or to faint, to suffer his remaining moments in a mercifully unconscious state. No, he was well aware. And only once the torments of hell, due to all of his people, due to, deserved for, deserved by, all of his people, only once the torments which we deserved were fully exhausted on him, only once that was done, would he then lay down his life to give up his spirit. Make no mistake about it. Jesus died, but he died because he gave up his life. His life was not taken from him, but when he died, he chose to die. And he didn't die until the work was completed. One of my favorite songs, which we don't really sing here, because the tune, and it's just not familiar, but it's, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup, O Christ, t'was full for thee. Thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, now blessings draught for me. Jehovah lifted up his rod, O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God, there's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood, beneath it flowed, thy bruising healeth me. The tempest's awful voice was heard. O Christ, it broke on thee. Thy open bosom was my ward. It braved the storm for me. Thy form was scarred, thy visage marred. Now cloudless peace for me. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood the flaming blade must slake. Thy heart its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. By the way, slake is uh, the idea of plunging a sword into a person or putting a sword into a sheath. Thy blood, the flaming blade must slake. And the last verse. For me, Lord Jesus, thou hast died and I have died in thee. Thou art risen My bands are all untied, and now thou livest in me. When purified, made white and tried, thy glory then for me. That's what they were talking about. That's what Jesus was talking about at the Last Supper. 
This is my body broken for you. This cup, this is the shed blood poured out for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is a symbol which will remind you of the way of salvation of what's actually taken place on that cross. And this is the reason why it's the best supper. This brings us quickly into our third and final point, the last supper. Verse 27 to 34, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, we are weak and sick. This reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will give instructions when I come. When scholar says that Paul warns that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. To examine oneself and to discern the body of Christ did not merely mean in this context to solemnly recognize that the bread and the cup represent Christ's body and blood, rather than being merely food and drink. To examine oneself means to examine one's compliance with the covenant, as reflected in their ways of relating to other members of the community. And to discern the body of Christ must include recognizing that others, the other members of the community, represent Christ himself, since they have also been united with him and must be treated as people for whom Christ chose to give up his life and to shed his blood. Period. Close quote. Yes, it is true. Jesus stands with his arms wide open, the resurrected Savior, calling all men and women to himself. And if you are here today and you're not a Christian, we are thrilled that you're here, glad that you're hearing this message, and we would call you to come to Christ, to believe on Jesus, to believe that he lived, died, and rose again for you, to save you from your sins. Jesus stands with his arms wide open. This is true. But you might be wondering, why then are there restrictions placed on those who may come to the Lord's table? Well, simply put, to come to his table, you first must come to Christ. If you have come to Christ, you will in time, if given the opportunity, obey Christ through baptism, the outward sign of the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the cleansing of your sins, and your death to sin and self and resurrection as a new creation in Christ. This is the first step of Christian obedience. It is basic. It is taught to us throughout the New Testament. Christians are to be baptized. And if a Christian refuses to be baptized, that's a problem. That's a huge red flag. That indicates something is off here. This new creation in Christ that you are will eventually, if properly taught, come to see that you are also not flying solo but you are to be brought into vital union with the rest of the body of Christ and to function as part of that body. Remember the body metaphor, the arm, the leg, the eyeball rolling down the street by itself saying, I don't want to be part of the body or I'll be part of the body out here, not connected, not committed. That's crazy. But you, being a new creation in Christ that you are, will eventually, if properly taught, come to see that you're not flying solo, but you are to be brought into vital union with the rest of the body of Christ and to function then as part of that body. And that's what we call church membership. So one who claims to be a Christian but refuses baptism is a red flag. One who claims to be a Christian and has been baptized but refuses to join a church, that is also a red flag. It is cause for concern. One who claims to be a Christian but doesn't know who Jesus is? One who claims to be a Christian but doesn't know how to become a Christian? One who claims to be a Christian but doesn't know what the gospel is? That's a red flag. So in short, to come to the Lord's table, someone must truly come to Christ first. Otherwise, you don't belong here any more than a dinner guest who shows up to a, a fancy dinner but then refuses to enter. Or they go to a black tie event, but they're wearing shorts and flip-flops. Wait a second, don't you know what this is? 
We, we gave you the instructions and you wouldn't follow them. We'll even provide you with the apparel. We'll give you the outfit, but you don't want to do that. You want to come on your own terms. God has provided everything necessary, but if you're going to come in, you have to actually put down your weapons of hostility, humble yourself, and come on his terms. What is clear, quite clear in this text, is that those who despise the body of Christ, his church, face severe consequences when they take the Lord's table. That's what it means to take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. It's to take this, to, to, to eat and drink of this while actively despising the body of Christ. The Corinthians severely struggled in this area. They were weaponizing the Lord's table as an opportunity to do the opposite of what Christ intended. Using the Lord's table as an opportunity to, to stick a dagger in the backs of those people that they didn't really like very much. As a result, many Corinthians ate and drank judgment on themselves. The word judgment, some of your Bibles will say condemnation, or King James, I think, says damnation. That's the wording. The wording in the Greek is the idea of being cast into hell. Condemnation, damnation, judgment. And that's also why in the New King James, as I'm, read, I'm reading it, says many are uh, sleep. Modern translations will say die. Because for them, this Lord's table was quite literally their last supper. Now, word of encouragement, these warnings from verse 29 through 32 should not cripple us in terror, but rather to compel us to return again and again and again to Christ. For when we are there in vital union and harmony with our Savior, all that we meet there are one in him. Why do you get along so well with your fellow church members, but when you go back home for Thanksgiving, you're just like kind of scared the whole time? Well, because you're actually one in Christ with the other Christians and you're not one in Christ with the people that you're one in blood and DNA with. When we are there in vital union and harmony with our Savior, all that we meet there are one in him. And that sweet fellowship that we have is a foretaste of heaven. This is why we eat and drink to celebrate the Lord's table until he comes. Because when he comes, we will participate together in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. What will that be like? I can't even begin to fathom but I long for it. Do you? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use these words, use this message to encourage your people, to challenge them, to point them in the way that you'd have them to go, to build your church, to strengthen it. I pray that you would help us if there are things that I've said that I shouldn't, that you would remove them from people's memories and bring the things to mind that are most important. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.